Well, today we're going to consider the final statement in Article 2 of the Creed. And that is this. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, He shall come to judge the living and the dead. So what we're going to be considering is the ascension or the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the victor over death, over sin, over the dominions of darkness, over the devil, over this world system. That His resurrection was the Father's stamp of approval upon the Son's perfect work. For what did Jesus declare upon the cross of Calvary? It is what? Finished. And after His death, on the third day, He rose from the dead. There is that stamp of approval. For 40 days, uh, He showed Himself to His followers alive, proclaiming to them the good news, that probably helping them understand all it is that He was living toward and living for, helping them understand the essence of the Gospel. And at the end of 40 days, it says that He ascended. Uh, in fact, we are told uh, specifically in Acts chapter 1, Verses 6 to 11, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The question is, is if you are resurrected, Lord Jesus, if you have defeated death and the devil and sin, if you have defeated this world system, is now the time for the kingdom to come in all of its fullness? In fact, this is the question that we probably are asking ourselves in light of all of the events that are happening around us. Why is there a pause in the coming of the kingdom? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This is Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Stop looking up and go and get ready for his coming in a new way, which is through the sending of his Holy Spirit. What I want us to be thinking about today is that when we think about the ascension of Christ, it's not about His departure from His world, but it is about His exaltation over the world and the, the absolute lordship that is now His because all things are under His feet. I put up here a verse that I think is really profound in regards to the ascension because in John chapter 3, verses 13-15, through 15, Jesus himself said, no one is ascended into heaven except the one who is descended from heaven. So here we have the contrast of the incarnation, the word became flesh, and the exaltation, the ascension, uh, the, the return to the right hand of God, the Son of Man. No one is ascended into heaven except the one who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up or exalted uh, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life and what i want us to see in regards to the ascension is that it began on the cross exaltation came through humiliation that he was lifted up on the cross and this is why jesus could say that if i be lifted up i will draw all people unto myself and i want us to see this beautiful contrast between incarnation and ascension Incarnation, the Word became flesh, is the meeting of man 
and God in human space. The Creator entered into His own creation. That God, the eternal Son, became human flesh. That God bound Himself to humanity in a unique way. That He lived as a man. He died as a man. He rose from the dead as a man. And He ascended to the right hand of the Father as a man. Which is really fascinating because we're not here to speculate what it means for the human, the resurrected God-man, Jesus Christ, to ascend into God's space, into the heavens. But I do want you to know that the resurrected Christ physically ascended. And now I think it's foolish for us to try to get our heads around what, what does it mean that He went into the heavens and He is seated at the right hand of the Father. But I think what's important for us to think about it is in these terms. That the ascension, if the incarnation is the meeting of man and God in human space, that the ascension is the meeting of man and God in God's space. What that means is that through the exaltation, through the ascension of Christ, He has taken with Himself redemption. He redeemed humanity to Himself. We are brought into the presence of God. We have access now to the Heavenly Father. And this is a powerful thing. It's not our place to figure out what does it mean? Where is His resurrected physical body right now? All I can say is that Jesus is in God's space and that does something for redeemed humanity. So when these men were looking at Jesus who was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight, there was a point where they could not see Him any longer. The two men who stood in the white robes said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Don't be looking up anymore. Go and get ready because you are going to be sent as conduits of the living Christ to bring forth the gospel to the lost world. And they're not even fully understanding what is coming. But what I want us to see today is that Jesus is the exalted King. That Jesus is our sympathetic High Priest. And that Jesus is our coming Judge. So if we were to begin here with Jesus as our exalted King, He ascended into heaven we look at hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 and what do we see in putting everything under him god left nothing that is not subject to him yet at present we do not see everything subject to him again in ephesians chapter 4 verse 10 he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things again first corinthians chapter 15 verse 25 for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet now let me ask you the question, does it seem from your perspective, from your vantage point, considering the shooting in Pittsburgh, considering the shootings in Thousand Oaks, considering the fact that the world literally seems to be saying, I've had enough of people. You know, scientists say that, that, that the world is rejecting humanity. I've seen plenty of science fiction. It really does feel that way. Uh, and that, that the world in its fallen state, I think that this actually speaks to the tension that we feel when we think about Romans 8, when it says that, that all of creation is groaning, awaiting its redemption. But when I look at the world around me, do I see this reality? In putting everything under Him, God has left nothing that is not subject to Him. Does it seem like the world is subject to Him? And I pose that question because it troubles us, because what we are focusing on today is the fact that Jesus is the exalted King, that He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, that He really is victorious. 
that we are living in a now and not yet reality. And look what it even says. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. There is a mystery involved. There is a hiddenness in regards to Jesus's victory that we are experiencing currently. Again, in Ephesians 4, 10, it says he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Do we sense that Jesus is Lord over all things, exalted over all things, filling all things, that all things are contained and sustained by the word of his power, the power of his word? But then in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Notice the tension. There is declarations that seem like it's already a done deal, and then there are also proclamations that seem like it's not complete. And so I want us to consider this. How do we put together in our minds, because this is very troubling for us, when we look at the pain and the suffering and the sin in the world in which we live, how can we say that Jesus is victorious? And how are we supposed to think about that as followers of Christ Jesus? What is it that we're putting our hope in? Who is it that we've put our faith, who is it that we have put our faith in? And I think we have to consider the reality of ascension in time. The church lives in two times. There is the time of the passing world, which is what we're experiencing. When we see the shootings in the synagogues and in the bars, when we see the fires that are occurring, when we see the wars that are happening, what we need to understand is that Scripture declares that the old is passing away and that we are witnessing and living within that old reality. This is the time of the passing world. But as followers of Jesus, the resurrected king, the firstborn over a new creation, and what are we told specifically in Scripture? If anyone is in Christ, he is a, she is a new what? Creation. All things are new. So we need to understand that there are two times in which we live. It's the tension which we feel. We live in the time of the passing world and the time of the new creation. And we have been sent as servants to live the life of the new creation within the world. We are called to be vehicles by which King Jesus makes himself known. What you see in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples are sent away, what, what are they told to do? They're told to wait for the, for the coming of the promised one. And this is a powerful thing because what we think of, we think of Jesus' ascension as his departure from the world, when in actuality, it's his departure in one mode of being and then the sending of his very spirit, his presence, by which he now is no longer found in one person in one place in time, but as king over all of time, Lord over all of time, he now sends his spirit to dwell within all of those who put their faith in him so that the very presence of the living Christ and the reality of this new creation time can be experienced in the world that is passing away. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And when the disciples receive the power of the Holy Spirit, what do they go out and present to that lost world that is passing away? That the King has come. That salvation is here. That today is the day of salvation. And so, not only do we live at, um, in two times simultaneously, the time of the passing away and the time of new creation, but we also live between the times. And that is between the resurrection and the return of the King. 
And this is what I, I want us to be thinking about, is that we need to understand that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It just is waiting to be fully manifested. And this gives us insight into what our purpose is then. Is that we participate in the time of the new creation in the spirit of the risen Christ. In other words, we become kingdom outposts as the church of God. This is a really fascinating thing because it says that our life is hidden with Christ and that He is the head of the church and we are the body. Think of it like this. The head is hidden, but the body is seen. And we are the body. Jesus, there is a pause. We are in the in-between time. There is a pause between, between resurrection and second coming. And why does that pause exist? Why is it? God has established a time in the midst of history in which He waits to be gracious in order that the world may be given time to repent and believe. In other words, we live in an age of grace. And we are called as the children of God, as sons and daughters of the King Most High, as the ones who are to proclaim the coming kingdom by calling people to repent and believe in King Jesus, to call them to put their faith in the fulfillment that we see in the prophecy of Daniel, which it says in Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given the dominion and the glory and a kingdom that all peoples... Nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We are called to be conduits of the saving reality of Jesus Christ. And this is why it's important for us to understand that Jesus' exalted King is not, is not His distance or detachment from us, but it's actually His rule over us through the sending of His Spirit, that we might become vehicles of this time of grace in which God is inviting the lost to experience the new creation which you and I are called to represent. Which is why the church is always faced with this idea of being called to redeem the time. Redeeming the time is not uh, living effectively moment by moment. Redeeming the time is bringing forth the redemption of Jesus Christ into every moment. It's living in the light of new creation in the midst of this passing world. Redeeming the time means doing all things unto the Lord. It's putting off the old man, the old woman, and living in the power of the new reality, which is ours because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Ascension began on the cross. He was lifted up to the cross. It, it, it comes through His humiliation. His conquering of death and His ascension to the right hand of the Father means that we worship a King who is victorious. Which means that if He is the King who has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, we do not have the right to walk around in gloominess. But we walk with the belief that He is already victorious and the fullness is yet to come. But we are to live in the light of that new creation. We are to put on the new man the new woman, by the Holy Spirit, which is exactly as exalted King, His ascension 
into the heavens means that he was able to send his Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says in John chapter 16, Jesus speaking to his disciples on the night of his betrayal in verses 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. They didn't fully understand what he was saying in this moment, but on the day of Pentecost, they got it. The very presence of Christ by his Holy Spirit came to dwell within those believers. And they became conduits of Christ's presence. This is why the book of Acts is not the absence of Jesus, but it's the continued work of Jesus through his church. And this is why it troubles me when I see Christians so beat down by the news that is around us, the darkness of the days, the political edginess that's happening, all of the polarization and the angst that people are experiencing. There's so much despair why are we feeding into that despair rather than bringing forth the message that our king is victorious over this world? Are we not experienced the victorious life of Jesus? Maybe we haven't learned to live in the light of new creation. Maybe we're still living according to the flesh rather than according to the power of the Spirit because the Spirit of Christ is given to us as a deposit to remind us that all in the end will be well and to invite people into that joy. That's why I always encourage you guys and ask you the question, do you have something that the world wants? That is, is there something in your life that actually speaks to the victory that is the reality of our life in King Jesus? Because he's either been exalted to the right hand of God or he hasn't. All of this is a fairy tale that doesn't improve anything. And I don't believe that's the case. We are declaring a creed that has been declared for 2,000 years because this gospel transforms lives. I was just talking with a young woman after service. Today, he's all excited that her neighbor is, is curious about Christianity and she's curious, she's open to spirituality in general. And I, I often say this, I get so mad, I'm fuming actually, when I hear Christian leaders talk about how difficult it is to preach the gospel in a post-Christian context. The only Christian leader that would ever say that is someone who doesn't preach the gospel. Because people are far more open to the gospel than we even begin to believe. It's the thing is that we're living, we're living, uh, living in fear rather than in the victory of God's love poured out through King Jesus and through His life and through his death, and through his resurrection. And when we really believe that Christ is victorious, then we will not be afraid to tell people that there is hope in the midst of their darkness. And this is what it means to have an exalted king. People are open to the gospel. We need to help them see that Jesus is the only God worth following. We need to help them see the truth of who he is. That his exaltation began on the cross and it began on the cross for them because remember he ascended to the right hand of the father for us if the incarnation is god meeting man in man's space the exaltation the ascension is god meeting man in god's space we have been gathered up into king jesus and this is why there's that profound verse in ephesians 1 and this will make your head hurt when you think about 
different kinds of time. <laughs> I, when it says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in King Jesus, in Christ Jesus. That if we are in Christ and Christ is in us and there's already a part of us that is with him in the heavenly places. It's profound. So he's our exalted king. The exalted king who is present and active by the power of his Holy Spirit. And we are called to live out the realities of that new creation on earth until he comes again. We live in two times, the time of the world that is passing away and the new creation, and we live between two times, between resurrection and his return. But he is also, and I love this, his ascension, his exaltation also speaks of this reality that he is our sympathetic high priest and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is our sympathetic high priest. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What did Jesus do? He tore down the middle wall of separation. He himself being our peace. He has given us full access to the Father. He has entered into the human dilemma so fully we can say that he literally descended into our hell and set us as captives free. And being set free, we now have the freedom to actually come to the Father with boldness because Jesus is the sympathetic high priest. He is the priest who has brought the once and for all sacrifice before God, so that we are accepted in Him. And because we are accepted in Him, we can trust. And because He's descended, it says no one can ascend to the Father except He who descends. And Jesus descended so fully into our brokenness that we can trust that even from this exalted state, He is the one who understands us, that feels our pain, that gets our hurt, that He is brokenhearted over the passing world. And He feels the depths of what we are feeling he understands the dilemmas that we are faced with and we can trust that he gets us that he cares about us that we can trust him i love that because when we often think about the idea of someone that's exalted or someone that's king it's someone that's separated from the brokenness and the pain of the world protected that lives in the castle away from all the pain that's why I don't really like castle for the name of our new church. <laughs> but that's not Jesus. Jesus came as the humble servant and through his servanthood was exalted to that heavenly place. But that heavenly place is an invitation for all of us to live in the light of that new creation to come into contact with a God who actually cares about our most secret thoughts. That cares about every aspect every detail of our existence he's our sympathetic high priest and from the seat of mercy he does what we can say that he dispenses mercy by the very fact that he sends his spirit as a gift but not only is he the sympathetic high priest but he is also the interceding high priest from that place at the right hand of the father he has the father's ear if you will and consequently, it says in Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save to the uttermost. One of my favorite verses. He can save us to the uttermost. 
those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know what I think about? Jesus in this exalted place becomes the one as the sympathetic high priest who intercedes on our behalf. You know, this is so beautiful when you connect it with Romans chapter 8 when we're told that we do not know how to pray as we ought, but God has given to us his Holy Spirit who basically intercedes on our behalf. That it takes two people in the Godhead to make sense of our nonsense. It's so amazing. <laughs> I mean, when you really think about it, it's like, it's like even the Holy Spirit's like, this is what I think he's saying. By the time he gets to Jesus, like, this is what I really think he's saying. And the Father's like, okay, whatever. Just give him, give him grace. Give him mercy. Not, that's not how it works. Uh, <laughs> that does great damage to the Godhead. <laughs> but the point is this, is that God has not left us to, his own de- to our own devices, but that he cares for us every step of the way. The way that I like to actually utilize this is as a sympathetic high priest, he becomes the one that communicates on our behalf. And I don't know about you, but have you, have you ever spoken through a translator? I'm sure all of you have done that. Uh, but I, I have had to speak in various countries where I've had to use a translator. And I remember the first time I spoke in Russia through a translator, I had this college student and she was... She was <laughs> questionable how good how good her understanding of english was and so i knew that while i was communicating to her that her interpretation of what i was saying was not making sense and listen i'm already hard to make sense of even without a translator so i give her tons of grace but as she was communicating i just could see the confusion on people's faces uh and 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 then i i went another time where i had this translator this guy from belgium who spoke i think four or five languages fluently and it was so crazy. He was such a good translator that while I spoke, it was like he was speaking while I was speaking and where I began to forget that he was even next to me. And, and he was so articulate and such a winsome person that I'm like, not only is he perfectly translating what I'm saying, but I'm pretty sure he's making it better. <laughs> That's what I think King Jesus does for us. That's what he does at the sympathetic high priest. Essentially, what Jesus is, is he himself is our word to the Father, and he himself is the Father's word to us. So beautiful. This is what the exalted king is. He is our sympathetic high priest. He's our interceding high priest. But he is also the seated high priest. And I I want you to think about this. Because it says here that he sits on the right hand of God the Father. And that's really a position of royalty, right? To sit at the right hand. And I don't know if you guys know much about the priesthood, but priests don't sit down uh, because there's always sacrifices to be made. But listen to this passage. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Never get to sit down. Always work to be done always atonement to be made. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The time in between time. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What this tells us is that we have a king whose sacrifice for us was so complete, so perfect, that when he said, it is finished, he meant it. That you cannot add to the saving work of Christ. You cannot complete in the flesh what God has begun in the Spirit. As new women and new Christ in 
the reality of the new creation under the exalted King, we have been forgiven. Past, present, and future. When the Son speaks on our behalf, intercedes on our behalf, He is interceding on behalf of one who has been redeemed by His blood. That we can enter into... It says no one can be in the presence of God and survive, but now the God-man is in the presence of God because He has redeemed human flesh. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And we can only say that because He put away sin through this. He is not only the priest, but He is the sacrifice as well. He is not only the judge, but He is the judged in our place as well. He is the exalted King, our sympathetic High Priest, and He works from a seated position. In Jesus, it's all rest. That's good news. It reminds me of my, my son who... When he was four, I took him to a baseball field and, and he was watching these kids practice. And after, I said, do you want to play baseball? And after the kids were running for a while, he turns to me and says, Dad, I don't want to play baseball. I like to rest. He was speaking redemptively there. <laughs> he was working from a deep understanding of the gospel. <laughs> Isn't it interesting, though, how hard we can work for something that is already ours? Isn't it fascinating how exhausted we get attempting to do something that's already been achieved for us. Jesus has, seated, has sat down. He's finished the work. He serves us from a seated position. I like that kind of king. That appeals to me. So beautiful. He is our sympathetic high priest. He is our exalted king. And finally, he is our coming judge. Remember what I said. We live in two times, the tension of two times, we live in the midst of the passing world and in the light of a new creation. And we are to constantly put off the old man, the old woman, and put on the new creation, living in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we also live between two times, between resurrection and between the second coming. And that is that there is a time when the age of grace, and the Scripture uses all kinds of interesting language for, for time, and I would say that time is generally used in almost a relational way in Scripture. Uh, it's given, it's never, it's never stated in the abstract. It's always for a specific, now is the time for salvation. Uh, the fullness of the Gentile. Uh, these are, there are all these different, the, the end of the age. And, and here we must understand that there is a point when Jesus Christ will come back bodily and the inaugurated kingdom will come in fullness and the new heaven and the new earth will come and the old will fully pass away. And in this time, this in-between time which we live, we need to understand that even as redeemed men and women, we will give an account for how we brought redemption time into this passing time. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. In other words, the death rate is one per person. No one escapes it, not even God, according to our gospel. And then comes the judgment, which means that each of us will stand before the judgment of God. Now, this is not judgment in the final, in the final sense of the word. That is, that based upon what we've done, we will either get to be with the king forever or be put away. No, it'll be the judgment of the works and it says that it will be tested by fire for our God is a consuming fire in 1 Corinthians. And we want the works that we have done to have been done in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we've lived in the light of new creation so that we don't stand before our king ashamed. 
But we also need to understand that the gospel in its completion, look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 29-31. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think that there is a, a tension and a balance that is needed in the Christian life, and that is the balance between the fear of the Lord and the love of God. Perfect love casts out fear, but we need to know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of it, but it is the beginning of it. And the fear that we should feel as followers of Jesus who have been sanctified by His blood is not a fear that causes us to run away from Him, but it's a fear that causes us to flee into His arms at the fear of offending a good, loving God. But we need to know that for those that reject the Gospel, and this is an age of the Gospel, it's an age of grace, that Jesus is the only cure for the disease of sin. And we are to present that reality to a broken world, to a fragmented world in which we live where people live under the brokenness of the, of the curse of sin. We are to call them into freedom, but the freedom comes through their belief and repentance, the turning to Christ who brings healing and sets free the captives. But to reject Him, that is what is meant when He says, he says this. He says, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, it says that the Spirit is sent into the world to reveal the reality of Jesus. That through the church, the gospel is preached. And those that respond to the gospel uh, are brought into that saving reality. You're saying yes to the yes that God has already declared of you. But we, there is the possibility and there is a coming final judgment in which the impossible possibility, as Bart called it, lies before us. And that is the ability to say no to God's yes over your life in Jesus. And if we say no to the cure, what is there for us? When we see what it costs God to bring redemption to humanity, how can there be any other way? And so we have to accept the fact that we are moving toward the culmination of time in which the passing world will pass away and the new creation, the new heaven, new creation will come. But it begins with the final judgment where Jesus came as the humble servant, he will return as the triumphant king and judge. A lot of people get hung up on the judgment of God and the final judgment of Jesus. And they, and, and they get hung up on it because they start to ask questions. It becomes philosophical for them rather than personal. And I think it's very important as Christians that we make it personal. We get so worried about how Jesus is going to judge other people, we don't even take time to realize that each one of us will give an account of everything that we said, everything that we thought, and everything that we did. And that has to play in the detention of the fact that we're saved by grace. But here's the fact. If you're one of those people who are like, well, what about those who have never heard the gospel? I would just simply say this, that Jesus is the light of the world and that people will be judged based upon the light that was available to them. And I will also say this. In regards to our sympathetic high priest who dispenses mercy, in regards to our exalted king, when it comes to the judgment of Jesus, 
we are being judged, first of all, by someone who knows us completely. There is nothing hidden from Him. He knows us inside and out. He gave His life for us, which means that we are also being judged by someone who is passionately committed to us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is why the Hebrews chapter 10 passage is so, is so serious because it says, what's left if you reject the Son of God, if you trample the cross underfoot? What, what, what is there left? That is the key to forgiveness. And we need to know that we are being judged by someone who knows us inside and out, someone who is passionately committed to us, but we are also being judged by someone that we have ourselves placed our trust in and we say that we know. And so when it comes to the judgment of Christ, I trust that it will be in absolute accordance to the very character that He has revealed Himself to be through my personal experience and through the proclamation of Scripture that His judgment is totally trustworthy and it will be in line with His character. And so I stand trembling before God, not a God that I want to run away from, but a God who is a loving God, a God who is a consuming fire because His love is a consuming fire that must burn away everything that is unlovely in the Beloved. And it is you and I that are the Beloved. I want His judgment in my life. Because I want Him to rid me of the things that, that hide His presence from me. I want His judgment in my life now because I want to see Him in everything that I do. I welcome the consuming fire of Jesus Christ because I want to be burned clean that I might be the man that God has intended me to be. And so, I simply read these words from Jesus. In John chapter 12, verses 47 through 48. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. In other words, the one principle of hell is I am my own means that hell is indeed locked from the inside out. May we accept the word spoken, the word of love over our lives. May we see the life of Jesus qualified him for the death that he died. The death that he died qualifies us today for the life that he lived because he rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is seated and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. May we celebrate the absolute exaltation of King Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.